God, I thank you for today. I thank you, Father, for that worship, Lord, and Lord, how much I needed it, God, to just break through this crust. God, I don't know if it's just the turkey that I ate or what, Lord, but I just feel so blah, Lord, and I thank you, Father, that worship, time with you, Lord, time spent with you, God, is such the remedy, Lord God, that we can just come before you, Lord, and do the work of giving you the praise you deserve, Father, and you do a work in us. So I'm so thankful for that, Lord. I praise you for that, God. Father, now as we dig into your word and we begin to look, Lord, at the Beatitudes, Lord, and we see, Lord, where our hearts should be, where you desire for us to be, God, and what an awesome study it is, Lord, to be able to dig in and to to do the work, Lord, of chewing on your word and to spend time with you in your word. And Father, as we do that, I just ask today, God, would you would you change us, God? Holy Spirit, would you do the thing that only you can do by bringing out things in us that we need to work on, by showing us areas of our lives, Lord, that we uh, need it shown to us, Lord, that a light needs shined on it. And God, most of all, I pray, Father, that your comfort and peace would come to us as we read. Lord, that you, Father, most of all, would be glorified and honored, Lord, by our lives, Lord, by the, the time we're spending with you here, Lord God, Father, that in all things, God, that we would just seek to bring you glory, seek to bring you honor, Father. And even as we read your word, Lord, I pray, Father, that we can give you honor and glory by opening our lives wide open to you and letting you do the work, letting you change, God, us. Pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So today, guys, we're going to be beginning to start the, the kind of the, our way through the Sermon on the Mount. And that's like a really well-known passage, right? Within all the Gospels, we have all these different places where the Sermon on the Mount is mentioned. And this teaching, we're actually going to be looking through the Sermon on the Mount, is found between chapter 5 and chapter 7 of Matthew, and in other places in the Gospels. But it's called, guys, the Sermon on the Mount. Guess why? Well, because it took place at the base of a mountain. And so Jesus was standing, or actually sitting, technically, on the mountain, right? And then there was this flat place that all the people sat down, or stood or sat down to, to listen and take it in. And this is something that, for the most part, early Christian history tells us that it's this uh, location, this flat spot at the base of a really large hill. I'm calling it a hill because it's just not a mountain. When you've lived out west at all, you realize that most everything is a hill in comparison, right? So it's, it's this really large hill in Capernaum, and it's currently known as Mount Aramos. And that's what early church history tells us was where he spoke uh, this particular sermon. The first 12 verses of this sermon in the book of Matthew are called the Beatitudes. And they're known as the Beatitudes. And when we look at these today... The thing I want you guys to keep in mind is that this is not a list of rules. If you want a list of rules, guys, there's 613 found in all the Old Testament, specifically Leviticus and some other places, right, that you can go and look at all these different rules. But this is not a list of rules. This is really looking at the heart of a disciple. This is Jesus saying, guys, if you want to follow after me, if you want to be my disciple, this is what your life should look like. And so The idea here is that we get to see the heart that God wants us to be having, the heart that God wants to grow in us as we walk with him. The other part of each of these beatitudes is this awesome thing, these promises that we're given, that if we live a life like this, that whenever we're disciples and we're like, man, God, I want to give you everything and we're we're walking this out, God promises promises us things 
And so it's an awesome uh, passage of Scripture. The last thing we're going to look at is that the stuff we're going to read today, guys, looks very, very different. It looks very different compared to what the world says someone should look like. It looks very different, dare I say, than to what the religious world says we should look like. I think church today, specifically America, Americans in church, American church, the American church, you guys pray for me. My mouth, what is wrong? <laughs> the American church today, guys, is missing it, right? Bigger, better, more light, smoke, fog, all this other stuff that we look at and we're like, man, that's a successful church, right? And not that there's anything wrong with that. I love a good concert, just like the rest of everybody else. But the point I'm making is, is that our hearts shouldn't necessarily have what the world would consider success. And we're going to read about that today. It stands in sharp contrast to that. And guess what? In the time of Jesus, it wasn't any different. The what, what he said here stood in stark contrast to the religious world of that day. The Pharisees and the Sadducees that were like, we've got it all figured out. You follow these rules and you're going to be good. You're going to get to heaven. That's what it takes because you're already a child of Abraham. You've already got all these other things that are going for you. You've got all these blocks checked. So all you got to do is follow these rules and you're good. And he was like, no, that's not it. The world standard. Take advantage as much as you can. Do whatever you can to get on top. And if that means you step on everybody on the way up, good for you. Doesn't that sound a lot like the world today? That's, that's, that was the world Jesus was in. And so here he is, guys, <laughs> over 2,000 years later, even now when we read this passage of Scripture, it should shock us. It should put us in a place where we're like, wow, I don't know if my life lines up with that 100%. And if you're here and, and, and every one of these lines up with you, like amazingly, then please, I will sit down. You can come up here and teach because it ain't me. So let's be honest with ourselves, guys, as we go through this over these next few weeks. And let the Holy Spirit work on your heart. That's my encouragement to you. What we're going to see is, is that in this chapter of Matthew, we see yet another cutscene. Remember we talked about that before? I talked about 2001 A Space Odyssey, the most amazing cutscene in all of film history, right? And so it's a, a cutscene in a movie. It's a space where you, you go from one time stamp to another in a very short amount of time. And Matthew does this a lot. And so here we see another one because he goes directly into the Sermon on the Mount right after Jesus got back from the desert. But there's actually time that we see in other gospels that took place in between there. So this takes place after the calling of the 12 disciples. That's why I have you guys in Luke chapter six, starting in verse 12, we're going to read what happens in between Jesus returning from the desert and his, and his temptation from Satan and uh, before the Sermon on the Mount. In verse 12 of chapter 6, it says this. Now it came to pass in those days that he went out to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called his disciples to himself. And from them, he chose 12 whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, excuse me, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called the zealot, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who also became a traitor. So we see here that this has already happened. Why is that important, you ask? Well, I'll tell you, because we're going to read in here a lot of times the word disciple. And it's important to know because there's a lot of scholars, well, not a lot, there's some scholars that argue 
that say like, oh, well, he's actually only specifically speaking to these 12 disciples and that's it. In other words, saying this really doesn't need to apply to us. Like, you know, God just wasted paper apparently and decided to write this down for everybody to read for years and years to come, but it wasn't really necessary. And that's not true, right? This word disciple here is actually speaking of everyone that was following him. He chose 12 disciples that come close, right? That were close, that were his kind of inner circle. And then in there, there was another inner circle. We know that, right? So there's this idea that he, that he had disciples that like left everything and followed him. But there were also others that left a lot and did certain things. And then there were just people that were like kind of following him. So there was like variations of the theme. There were shades The important thing for us to hear here is this, guys, as we dig through these things. It's really up to you where you want to stand with the Lord. And and the encouragement from Jesus here, if you guys want to turn back over to chapter 5 in Matthew. The encouragement for all of us is, the hope is, is that we would all be pressing in completely. That we would forsake all and follow him. That's the heart that we should have. That's the heart that he desires for us. But the joy of this whole story is this, is that the Bible tells us clearly that you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that you're saved and you're saved. So you don't have to be like reading this and feel condemned because none of us are there. But can I say that I want to encourage all of us today that our hearts should be aimed towards that, that our hearts should always be going back to God and being like, God, I want to give you more. God, I don't even know what I'm not giving you. Can you show me that? Because... I'm not even 100% aware of what I have left to give or what's going on. That could be some of us. Some of y'all maybe just need to crack open the crust and say like, God, I haven't given you anything. I want to give you a little. And, and let God work that out in you. I'm not trying to condemn anybody. So wherever you're at with the Lord today, can we just take this in? Can we understand that it's, it's important? That if God bothered to waste space in his Bible, and I'm saying he's never wasting it, but if he bothered to write it down, and if he bothered to write it down in multiple places, it means it's important, guys. And so as we study these, we're going to go through them verse by verse. We're going to just chew and dig through little by little because it's that important. Last thing I want to bring up. An updated word for the word blessed, which we're going to read a lot today as well, is fortunate. Some translations use the word happy, and the reason I'm not a huge fan of that is that the meaning here is deeper than temporary happiness. Happy is taken on its own flavor, right? Like some people might be really happy when they're on a roller coaster, and other people might be absolutely miserable. So that's not it. You know what I mean? Like there's, happy can be like temporary, but this means something deeper. And so I love the word fortunate. And so as we're reading through, we're going to read the verse as it is in the New King James, but I'm going to use the word fortunate because, guys, this word fortunate to me, I'm fortunate to be born in America. We all are. We could just as easily have been born elsewhere. We are fortunate, guys, to have the freedom to come and sit and sing songs to God and to read his word openly. That's a, we're fortunate. Do you understand? That, do you understand how there's a, there's a shade there that's, that's deeper than happy? So whenever we're going through here, let's understand that like when, when we're reading these things, what Jesus is saying is, guys, you are fortunate. You are blessed. There is peace and joy and all these other things wrapped up in a life that's lived out fulfilling these beatitudes. It's huge. Let's read verse 3. I'm sorry, verse 1 through 3 
in uh, chapter 5 says this, And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountainside. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And that's why I want to stop there. So fortunate are the poor in spirit. You might say, like I did, whenever I remember the first time I read this, I'm like, poor in spirit. Well, I'm, I grew up pretty poor, so I was like, I, I guess I got that one nailed, right? Like, <laughs> but that's not what it means. It means this. Poor in spirit means you're not depending on yourself. It means you recognizing your own life that you don't really have a lot to bring. That it's all God in your life. And for us, a disciple, guys, should realize that they're bringing nothing to this game and that God brings everything to you. Right? You, you're, you're not a catch for God. You know? Like, there's not a part of you that God's like, man, that's what I've been missing. No. God is completely and utterly fulfilled in and of himself. And by the way, he'll find somebody else. Right? If you're not willing. Like, there's not anything you bring to the plate. And so, this idea of being fortunate when you're poor in spirit is awesome and weird and different for us because we're looking at our lives and what are we told? You're talented. You're special. You're amazing. And that might be true. God may have given you talents and he may have made you super special and amazing in certain areas, but God did that in you. You didn't do that yourself. And it doesn't matter if you're like, I've practiced this many years to get good on the drums, or I've done this much to get my voice to be amazing when I sing, or, or I'm an amazing organizer because that's what I went to school for was business and I'm great at it. Well, good for you. You may have like, in, you know, practiced and, and worked on the talents God gave you. But again, we're back to it. God gave it to you. You didn't give it to yourself. Whenever we look at our lives, guys, especially as Americans, we're all financially blessed. The poorest person here is wealthy by the world standard. You understand? Like, we're all blessed beyond belief, right? Because the fact is, guys, when we look at this and we say, like, man, I'm, I'm blessed this way and I'm blessed that way. Again, you didn't do any of that. Yeah, you may have went to college. Or, yes, maybe you have a, an amazing talent that's earned you the ability to make a great wage. Or maybe you have all these blessings because your family gave you a huge inheritance or any number of reasons. But do you understand that you could just as easily have been born in Africa starving to death? You could just as easily have been been born to, you know, in an orphanage, you know, like born by your, your mom and then put in an orphanage and never had anything, never had any connection to anybody, never had anything. Do you understand how blessed you are just to be where God put you? Like, it's amazing when you start really processing the idea of being poor in spirit. And if I'm beating a dead horse, I apologize, but I've had all week to study this. And so God's been showing me over and over and over the amount of times that I complain about the fact that I was born in Timbuktu, Pennsylvania, or the fact that I grew up in a poor family, or the fact that I have these things and that thing. And and it's like, oh, Lord, forgive me. Because I didn't bring anything to the plate anyway. Right. And, and, and instead of like complaining about all the stuff that happened in my life or all the things that have gone down in my life, man, that idea of being poor in spirit is a recognition that God, look at what you've done with me. Look at what you've given me in spite of me. Do you understand? And so as a disciple, guys, can I encourage us? Get a hold of that heart. Get a hold of that. If you're here and you're prideful in any way about your life or the things that God's given you, recognize that God gave you everything. 
And if you're here like me and you're looking more the opposite direction and you're like, I had a bad life or I was poor growing up or whatever, fill in the blank. Recognize the gifts and the blessings and the wonderful things that God has done through you as a Christian. There is no person here that should hear this and think, no, I don't need to hear this. We all need to learn more what it is to live a life as a disciple and say, yeah, God, you're bringing everything to me. I've got nothing to offer, but God, I'm so thankful you use me. Can I say that when we look at the fact that Jesus was a rebel, that Jesus came out and said things that blew everybody's mind, this very first one did. Because what's the worldly philosophy of today? Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, right? Or the very popular one today, and I might step on toes here today, and I apologize, so you need to hear me out. Please don't shut, my, shut your ears off when I say this, but this idea that you're supposed to be practicing self-care all the time, that's, you hear it on self, you know, on uh, social media, you hear it all these places. Like, I'm practicing self-care. And there's nothing wrong with any of these things. We should be seeking to work hard and better ourselves. That should absolutely be happening, Right? We should be making sure physically, mentally, spiritually that we're healthy people. Nothing wrong with those things. But here's the thing, guys. The warning I think that this is speaking to us about is this. We should never let self become an idol. And I think that happens a lot in today's culture. Self becomes an idol. We can begin to start believing that after we've you know, pulled ourselves up by our own bootstraps that we've done it all ourselves. No, you have not. You know, refer back to the first point. God gave you everything. You didn't pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. God gives us everything. The talents you've worked so hard for, they're there, but God's given you that gift. You didn't give it to yourself. And the book of Job makes it quite clear just how fast all that can go away. So the fact is, guys, for us, man, especially as Americans, again, let's not get this idea in our heads as a church that, man, we're, we're here because we got here. No. No, we did not. The second point about self-care is that we can start thinking that we are the most important person always. That's my, that's my fear and my problem with the whole idea of saying, I'm taking care of myself and it's all about my self-care and I'm checking in on myself. And because the fact is we should be aware and take care of ourselves. But being consumed with self is the absolute opposite of being healthy. It's the absolute opposite of being healthy. And guys, I'm not trying to make all this about COVID, but can I say that this whole COVID thing has become this thing that all the self-care folks that are really just wanting to be about themselves have turned it into something sometimes that I feel is absolutely unhealthy. They're completely removed from society. They're not coming around and talking to anybody. They're staying very far away from everybody. Why? Because they never really wanted to be around much anyway. Sometimes I'm not... You got to figure out where you are with God. I'm not, I'm not painting with a big, broad brush. I'm just saying it's, I've seen it. And can I say as a person that really enjoys being in my sweatpants at home, it's a temptation for me, right? Like, I kind of like it. Just sit at home. I got myself a TV, right? I can sit and watch Netflix. It's a temptation, isn't it? But that's not self-care. It's not. And the fact is, guys, is that The real question that I think as Christians that we have that maybe the world doesn't see is this. Our spiritual health always requires a healthy dose dose of service to others. 
Our spiritual health requires a healthy dose of serving others. So self-care is good. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying don't take care of your mind. Don't take care of your body. I'm not saying any of those things. I'm saying don't let it become an idol. Don't let it become an excuse. Don't let it become a reason that you're like, my spiritual health doesn't matter at all. As a Christian, that should bother you. As a Christian, if you're not going to church ever, online or otherwise, that should be a bother to you. And it concerns me. And it's not, I'm not talking to just us. I'm talking worldwide. You know how many articles I get that talk about like, oh, pastors are concerned because everything's going down, 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 down. All the, all the, everything. It's all going down. They can't even get in touch with people. People have changed their numbers. I read an article about, that's not y'all. And I praise God for that. But can I say, guys, it's a, it's a temptation that the enemy is throwing before the church and some people in the church are gobbling it up. Let's not be that way. The questions we should be asking ourselves as believers is, what does God want to do with all that I've earned and all that I've been blessed with? What does God want to do with that? That's a life that's lived being poor in the spirit, saying, it's not about me anyway. What does God want to do with the time and the energy that I have for his glory? What type of sacrifices does God want us to make? So please... Guys, as I prepared this message, I can tell you it wasn't nearly as much of a downer as it seems like it is at the moment. (laughs) So I apologize. But can I tell you guys, I just feel like the Lord is wanting to say something to us. Is wanting our hearts to be opened up to the realization that this mask thing and COVID thing is temporary. Eternity is forever. So what matters more to you? The promise to us from this verse is that it says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That word there, to me, when I studied, was a bit of a shocker. It's not there for everybody. Your heart should look differently as a Christian. God should be moving in us and changing who we are. And it doesn't mean we're perfect. And it doesn't mean we're walking in perfection. But can I say, if our hearts are saying, Lord, I'm aimed towards you. I know you've given me everything and I just want more of you. Guys, we have the promise of the kingdom of heaven. We have that promise. We can hold tightly onto it. Isn't that awesome? Can I say that the more we recognize that now, right? Because the kingdom of heaven is not just then. God's Right, Jesus prayed, right, that the kingdom of heaven should come now on earth as it is in heaven. And there is that realization, guys, the more we live our lives and say, God, you're more important than me. God, you're more important than my time and my schedule and everything that I've got. God, you're more important than all the money you're giving me anyway that's yours. You're more important than all that. The more we realize that, guys, do you understand that we start seeing that our treasure isn't here anyway? It's in heaven. And we get to understand and grab hold of the fact that God, you're using this scummy life. (laughs) You're using me and I praise you for it. And there's, there's being treasure in heaven that is not going to be destroyed. That's not going to go away. And all the stuff that I have here starts to pale in comparison. And so I don't want to be consumed with the blessings that I've got here. And I don't want to be even, to be honest with you guys, consumed with how many days on this earth that I have. Because guess what I have to look forward to? Heaven. (laughs) I'm not worried about this stuff. I don't want to be. I want my life to be used by God to bless others. I want to see that there's, there's so much greater joy. And I want to see that for our church. 
I want to see our church get a grab a hold of that understanding that there's so much more joy in serving than there is in being served. That there's so much more joy in saying to God, I've got nothing, but what I have, I give you. And watching him just blow things up and use our lives in ways that we have no other response other than to just stand in awe and worship of God for using us. Amen? Amen. Verse 4 says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Fortunate are those who mourn. It might sound weird to us, huh? Truth is, as has been done from the beginning of time, mourning was something that we do over death or calamity, which it should be. But for believers, and in the Jewish culture as well, mourning was also done over sin. And I feel like that's what Jesus is getting at here. That it's because something that he's saying is is that, look, when you get it, when you mourn over your sin, when you're not just okay with the status quo of your life, when you recognize that there's something going on in you that is dirty and disgusting and you give it to me, that there's a blessing in that for you. That you're fortunate because you get a hold of the idea that we're not perfect, but we got a perfect savior. That we're not 100% on the ball all the time. We're not always hitting the mark, right? That's what sin means. You miss the mark. We don't always hit the mark. We miss it a lot, right? And so this idea of getting a hold of the idea that you're, a, you're blessed. That you're fortunate when you recognize your need. Why? Guys, do you realize, again, going back to the poor in spirit thing, these all kind of stick together because the more you realize your need, the more you realize that you're like, man, I'm not getting to heaven on my own merit. I'm not going to get to heaven on anything I've done. It's all Jesus anyway. And you start recognizing that that's your entire life. Do you understand what a blessing there is in that? And do you understand how totally polar opposite that is from what the world thinks? We should look different. We should live differently. Truth is, guys, is our sin nature that lives in all of us is full of rot. Right? I have other descriptive words that I won't say. We're just full of rot. That's our sin nature. That's the old man. You know, I love the idea of a zombie theologically. Why? Because I feel like that's our old man. He just is like walking up on us and wanting to eat our brain, right? Like, just wants to munch on us. And we're always like, get off me, get off me, get off me. But he just keeps coming because he's a zombie, right? He doesn't stop. And so it's this idea, guys, that for us, is that, that's, our, that's who we are, right? That old man that's walking behind us because we're Christians, right? And we put off the old man. He's still there chasing us this whole time on earth. Yet another great reason to be done here and go to heaven, right? So that he's dead completely. And so there's these things. But let's flip over to Romans because, you know, a lot of people look at Paul and they're thinking like, man... Look at Paul. What a man. What an amazing guy. Read Romans chapter 7. You'll see what, what Paul thought of himself. Romans chapter 7 verse 18 says this. For I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me. But how to perform what is good, I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do that I practice. And let's flip down to a verse or look down at verse 24. It says this, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? 
And what that means in the Greek is that literally he's saying, who will deliver me from carrying this corpse around? Again, another zombie reference, just saying, right? So it's this idea that Paul recognized and got a hold of the fact that he's like, look, I get that I'm redeemed, that Jesus did the work on the cross. I get that my sanctification is not done, but my justification is. You guys get the difference? You're justified before Jesus. He sees, before God, he looks and he sees his son Jesus' blood on us as Christians, and he says, you are fine. You're in. But sanctification is a walking process. It's part of us walking through the muck and the mud. And, and God's like, oh, I cleaned you up down to your knee. Good job. Right? And then the next day you're like, I'm, high, I'm thigh deep again. Oh, no. Right? And he, <laughs> it's a constant thing that he's working on, guys. But we see here that Paul himself, the apostle that I, I don't know about y'all, but I look at him and I'm like, man, wow. Look at this guy, Paul. And here's what he thinks of himself. He's like, I get that it's not in me. I get it. It doesn't matter that I've studied more than everyone else. It doesn't matter that by the Jews' standards, I'm the best. Right? It, none of that matters because I know who I really am before the Lord. And guys, that's what Jesus is saying back in Matthew. He's saying, get a hold of the fact that there's reason for you to mourn and that there's a blessing in your mourning. And the real blessing for us, guys, because remember, he's saying this obviously before his own death. But we see that truth in hindsight. So we see the truth that in the morning is also, right, this wonderful blessing and knowledge that, Jesus, you paid for that. Jesus, you've forgiven me for that. I don't have to walk around in mourning forever. I can just say to you, take this. I don't want it. I repent. And it's gone. That's exciting. And so, guys, can I say to you, if you're here today and there's nothing, you know, you're like thinking like, man, I'm not that bad. I'm pretty good. Can I say to you guys that there's not one comfort you're going to find that will ever satisfy your eternal soul? There's no drug, no sexual pleasure, no alcohol, no video game, hobby or self-care habit or anything like that that's going to fulfill you and comfort you eternally. The only way you find that is by recognizing in and of yourself the need you have for a savior. That's what brings that. And it's totally opposite from what the world would say. The world would say, fill yourself with alcohol. Go have sex with everybody. Go do whatever you want to make sure that you feel happy all the time, which means it's temporary. So you got to keep doing a lot more things and it gets worse and worse. That's not, that's not fulfillment. And I don't know about y'all, but I'm sure there's plenty in here that could say, yep, that's true. I know in my own life, prior to Christ, I can say, try a lot of that stuff didn't fulfill me. It's the realization that, oh man, I need Jesus. And when you come to that realization, when you recognize the need for your own mourning because there's not anything in you that's going to get it, there's such peace. You guys know this. Verse five. It says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You guys, the meekness that we see here, that word meek, it's kind of looked down upon today, isn't it? By the world, humility, meekness. People like look at those words and they think they're weak. Meekness is the polar opposite of weak. Meekness literally means like power under control. A horse is a meek meek animal. Anybody ever been around a horse? 
When you all see a horse and, and it comes up to you, he had a horse in Nebraska that came up to me and he was a really friendly horse and he, he put his little, the bottom of his chin down on me because that's what he did to get people's attention because he wanted petted. And so he went like this. This horse was like this. And it came up and it was all galloping up to me and I'm like, <laughs> like I'm all afraid, right? And she's like, oh, he likes you. And I'm like, that's nice. Get away from me, right? It freaked me out. Why? Well, that horse is meek. That horse was being super friendly. That horse was like totally like, man, I'm totally cool with you. If you want to ride me, that's fine. You can do whatever you want. We can, you, you can use me however you want to use me. All these things that horses that we do with horses. I grew up around the Amish. They use them for everything. But the, I mean, the recognition when you stand behind, beside a horse though, is the fact that that horse could crush you into a little bit. You could be a little puddle of oil if, if that horse chose to do that, right? Like you're not in control there. He's, that horse has all the power, but it, it controls its own power and says, fine, it's okay. That's, this word meek is huge. Another personal example that we see in the Bible is David. Here's David, guys, goes and does all this crazy stuff. God totally blesses him in war. He's told he's going to be king, and then he's chased around by this psychotic man that he tried to help and love and minister to, Saul, the king, Two different times in the Old Testament we see where he could have totally taken Saul out, and yet both times he didn't. That's meekness. Power under control. He had every right to do that. But the one thing he said was, it's not for me to do, it's God's. And guys, for us, that's the idea of meekness. That's the idea that we see here is that when we're looking, guys, at this idea of meekness is that we have power. We all have power. But can I say as a church, guys, I don't know that we're always humble, that we're always keeping it under control. You know, I, I got Facebook. It doesn't take much strolling, scrolling up through Facebook to see sometimes when we all take, and I'm just as guilty of it, of taking advantage of the power I have and saying things that maybe I, after I say them, I'm like, oh boy, I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> right? Meekness. This idea of being meek, of walking out our humility. You guys, what the Bible tells us here is that we're going to inherit the earth. The meek will inherit the earth. And as we look at our lives and we say, what does it even be, mean to be meek? I would ask you and encourage you to say, God, what does it mean to be meek? How does it look to be meek on Facebook? What does that mean? Do we have to answer every political disagreement? Do we have to put on these horrible things that are like going to really hurt some people? Do we have to do that? Or can we just keep it under control and recognize that even if we are right, we don't have to say it. You understand? I'm not talking about being a doormat. I'm not talking about taking, you know, taking everything and just being like, I don't have to say, I'm not going to say anything because I'm just going to take it all. That's not what I'm getting at. What I'm getting at is this heart of knowing how can I be used by God to bless others. And we read a lot of different Proverbs that say sometimes the best way to do that is silence. That sometimes the best way to do that is by not saying what we could say or doing what we could do, but sometimes it's by just chilling, relaxing a little bit, and letting things be. Because we don't have to prove it. You guys recognize that? God's got it. God's got it. The meek... We'll live a life of humility. They go hand in hand. As a matter of fact, the word is kind of interchangeable all but. 
And here's what really it means, is that when you're living a meek life, it's a recognition that God has you, and God knows every situation and every outcome and everything, and you can trust him in it. And so it's more a matter for a meek person to say, Lord, is this something I should say, or am I saying this because I'm in the flesh right now? That's a great question that a meek person would ask. A person that's just walking in the flesh and isn't walking in meekness will be like, of course I'm going to hammer them because they need it. I'm going to tell them all about what I think. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk and make sure they know that I'm not for this or I am for this. And I think most of the time, guys, as believers, we don't see Jesus really entering into a lot of that stuff. Who's he entering in with it? Fellow church people. <laughs> right? He didn't go out into the world and tell the Romans how to do their thing. He just didn't. So I think it's a good example for us. What does it mean to be meek? Seek the Lord. Pray about that. There's a quote from Spurgeon that I want to read that I love. He uses the word humility here, but it says this, blessed are the humble for they will inherit the earth. It is not your high spirited, quick tempered men who will put up with no insults. Your bullying lofty ones who are always ready to resent any real or imagined disrespect. There's no blessing here for them, but blessed are the humble. Those who are ready to be thought nothing of. Let that sink in. Are we okay in today's political climate, in today's world with what's going on and what we think about COVID-19 and how we live our lives? Are we okay with just saying, yeah, it's okay? Are we? Are we okay with going to the Lord before we make comments and do things and say things on Facebook or do things like that where we say, Lord, is this what you want me to say or is this just me being in the flesh? And guys, it's a big struggle for me. I'm just being real with you. So I'm not condemning. I'm telling you. That's the question I've got to ask myself all the time. Do you know how many times I type out Facebook responses? This is the one joy about Facebook. You can type out a huge response and then delete it. I do that so often, right? It's a joy to know that I can, before I hit send, say, Lord, is it, should I do this? Is this of you or is this of me? And if it's a, not of you, then I don't want to do it and delete it. It's an awesome thing. And so let's take advantage of it. Amen. Why should we do that? Because we're going to inherit the earth. And this is an important promise because the world's always creating this or attempting to create peace and, and all this perfect utopian world through politics, through humanitarian efforts, through economic policies, through all these things. And it's obvious, guys, that through all of our efforts as humanity, that ever since Adam and Eve, we've been on a pretty steady downhill decline. And I would say that the slope is, is, is gradually getting worse, right? We're almost at a cliff stage at this point. We're going downhill fast. But do you guys understand that like, it's because the world's denying God and continuing to try to fix humanity? And it'll never work. And so we as believers should look differently. That's why meekness matters. Because the promise for us, guys, as believers, is that we will come back. If we die and go to heaven, we'll spend time in heaven. If we are here and then Jesus returns and we go to heaven, when he comes back after the tribulation, we have a thousand years of ruling and reigning with God. We have a thousand years of that, depending on your eschatology. (laughs) right? But this idea of knowing that the world will be ours, we will inherit the earth and it will be under the rule and reign of Christ guys. That's awesome. 
And do you understand how piddly and insignificant that makes a mask or how piddly and insignificant it makes our political situation and all these other things as Christians, we should live differently. We should look differently at things. We should say, this is not worth an argument. I still want to bring you to Jesus. That's what matters. That's what matters. Not an argument. And I'm preaching to myself, you guys. There's an inheritance for us. And the whole goal of what Christ came for was to say, bring them all in. Tell others about me. Bring people to me. That's our focus. And so it's important for us, guys. What does it look like to live meek for you? What does that look like? It's an important question. Verse 6, our last verse. Wow, sorry guys, we're going long. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Fortunate are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You guys realize that like we're not righteous in and of ourselves. We don't bring anything. Isaiah 46, 6, or 64, 6 tells us that our righteousness that we bring is like filthy rags. We're not bringing anything. And we're fortunate as we understand this, guys, because there's no better way to live a life. Again, if it's all about Jesus and if we have this inherited earth that's coming later, and if the whole goal of our lives should be to bring people to Jesus, then why would we not say, God, I want to look more like you. Jesus, I want my life to reflect you more and not me. So, of course, it makes sense that blessed are those that hunger and thirst after righteousness. It doesn't mean we're there on our own. The only way we're going to get there is through Jesus. Amen. What's the promise there? This is the coolest one, I think, in my opinion. Hunger and thirst after righteousness, and the promise is you will be filled. You want to change life? Pray for it. You want to change life? Say, God, I want more of you and less of me. And watch what he does. That's the promise. It's a right now promise. It's not one for later. It's now. Live your life differently. Seek the Lord with all that you have. And I promise you, because his word promises it, you will be filled. Amen? Amen. Guys, there's a lot to chew on in the Beatitudes, isn't there? We just made it through half of them. We got another half next week. I want to encourage you guys, take these things that we've talked about to the Holy Spirit. Don't just let it die here. The enemy wants nothing more than to walk out the door and for you guys to be like, oh, I need a tank of gas and forget everything you just thought about. Or I got to stop at the grocery store to get this because I got this going on. Don't do that. Don't let the enemy steal this. Chew it. Do the work of seeking God and letting him shine light on areas of your life that you need work on. We've talked about this before, that church is not, it's not a place to come and just sit on the sidelines. It's a place to be a part And so you guys, we get the opportunity as we chew on these hard scriptures to say, Lord, what does this mean to me? How do you want to change me? What do you want to work on in me? It's not about everybody else. It's about you. It's between you and the Lord. Amen. Amen. Last thing I want to say is if there's anybody that needs prayer for anything, I know all the time we say that, you know, Brother Steve, myself, we're in the back. But I want to say to you guys as a church that that's part of us being the church. So if you need prayer for something, grab the person next to you. Grab someone you trust and say, I need prayer, right? I'm, we're here. We're for sure we're here, but we're two people. We got a whole church full of people that are more than glad to pray. So let's be the church. Let's do these things. Let's pray together. Let's be a, a body that believes strongly in praying and being there for one another. Amen? Let's pray now.